intrepid architects out there. If you believe design can change the world, then you've found your humans here on this show, Architecting. My name is Angela Mazzi, and I'm an architect and career coach who's figured out how to live my passion while claiming a successful architecture career and lifestyle. This show is about the architect as a person and will help you bypass the status quo traps in our profession while teaching you how to make an impact in your career. We need to stand in our power as architects and use our skills to make great places. If you're with me, let's get architect. You know, I think that's the misconception. That rest is just the cessation of activity, stopping, not doing things. It's what are the restorative activities? What are the things you're doing to pour back into the places you're depleting while you're producing? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Architecting. Today, I have on as my guest, Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith, who has a really interesting perspective about something I know that all of you need to know a whole lot more about, which is rest. I read a great article that she wrote, which led me to an even better TED Talk. And I realized this was something that we all needed to hear. Welcome, Dr. Dalton Smith. Great to have you on the program today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The first thing I wanted to start with was how did you start studying rest and the importance of self-care? Very organically. I I basically burned out. And so in my own period of kind of getting to a recovery phase and learning what I needed to do to get my life back on track after burning out, I found that there is very little information out there that was practical that I could put into practice. Uh, on a, in, in a busy life, you know, there were things like take a vacation, quit your job, you know, all these other things yeah, that so not. helpful. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't want to quit my job and a vacation is a short-term fix to a long-term problem. So I, I needed to find something that I could do in the middle of my busy day to recover my life, to restore those places that were being depleted. And I found that the very first thing I had to do was figure out what was depleted. I think like most people, when you're tired, I automatically thought I just got to get better quality sleep. Mm. And so that's where I focused with getting higher quality sleep. And then what do you do when you wake up after eight hours of sound sleep and you're still exhausted? That's when the real work began. And, and I find that's a common thing, right? Because you are burned out more than you are physically tired. And then we push ourselves to keep going. What are your insights for people who feel compelled that they have to push themselves? And what are some of the hidden traps in doing that? The thing to keep in mind that I always think about is people who have a tendency to be high achievers, what I call the doers. They're used to doing, they're chronic producers. They're often overthinkers, always processing. Those people can get to a level of burnout and still keep producing. So they can produce in their burnout. And I think that's what gets tricky. I think that's what's bred a society of predominantly burned out people because high achievers can still achieve and still do while burned out. But the problem is they're doing it under distress. They're, they're not happy. They're not satisfied. Mentally, they're depleted. Emotionally, they're depleted. So they're producing from their emptiness. Producing mm-hmm. is actually not very great. It's not as good as it could be 
if they were producing from a better place. It goes to that whole idea of productivity. And there's a little bit of a myth that if you work harder, you're more productive. But what are you producing? You know, what exactly is being produced? You know, one of the things that really helped me for myself in looking at this is my son at the time when I was writing my book, Sacred Rest, came to me with this project he was working on where they were studying bees. And I was reading about these bees and I was like, you know what? That sounds a whole lot like my life. I'm busy, 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 producing, 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 and I'm producing all of this sweetness and goodness. And everybody's telling me how great I am and how much I'm blessing their lives and helping them succeed. And I am not taking a moment to taste the sweetness I'm producing. I'm burned out. I'm unhappy. I'm unsatisfied. And everybody else is loving what I'm producing, but I haven't actually enjoyed any of what I was producing. Mm. And so I think for any person who truly wants to live any life of success, you have to be a consumer of the goodness you're producing in the world. You have to have some time where you're also a consumer and you're enjoying some of that. And that's really kind of what rest started to look like. It was not just stopping. You know, I think that's the misconception that rest is just the cessation of activity, stopping, not doing things. It's what are the restorative activities? What are the things you're doing to pour back into the places you're depleting while you're producing? Yeah, that's a game changer. It really is a different way of thinking about what rest is. And I love that you have your seven forms of rest. And one of them was creative rest. (laughs) I, I think that is really amazing. If someone is in a creative slump, what would you recommend are the best restorative strategies for them? Yes. So of the seven types of rest, creative is probably the one that had the most unique components because when we think about creativity, I think most of us automatically start thinking about artists and musicians and writers and, you know, these people who are, who are making things that we can say, oh, that's a creation. But I think what we don't really catch sometimes is that if you're someone who has to solve problems, if you're someone who's having to think outside of the box, be innovative, brainstorm new ideas, you're using creative energy. And so that creative energy that's being lost has to have a source of being poured back into you. And that's what creative rest is. It's the rest we experience when we allow ourselves to appreciate beauty in whatever form it is, whether it's man-made beauty like art or dance or theater or music or this natural beauty like the oceans or the mountains or flowers, any of those things that they spark inspiration inside of you. Mm-hmm. And they really help you to be able to birth something creatively. I think sometimes it's interesting. People will ask me, well, is it creative rest if I go to like a pottery class or a art class where I'm creating? That's actually creative work. You're putting a demand on your creativity to do something. Creative rest is the opposite of that. You're allowing what's already been created to create something inside of you. So ah. it's, it's a complete opposite mindset of how you're approaching it. I probably should have asked you to start with explaining the seven forms of rest, but it seems like they're all about receiving as opposed to giving and that that's really the key differentiator. It is, it's restorative activities. What are you doing to pour back into the places where you are consistently pouring out? And so those seven types that you mentioned are physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, social, sensory, and creative. And so in each of those seven buckets, so to speak, our day-to-day activities pull from them. So some of us get pulled more out of the mental. Maybe we are doing things where we are you know, mentally engaged all day. 
Some of us are pouring more out emotionally. Maybe we're dealing with people and their feelings and, and interacting with people in that way or socially. Some of us are pouring out more creatively, but the places where you pour out without being intentional about pouring back in are the places where you're gonna experience a rest gap. Ah, so that's why there can be that unevenness because it just depends on where the deficit happens to occur. Yes, and, and your awareness of you pouring out of that area. For example, I have a lot of people who they've never thought of, they feel tired all the time. They know they're getting decent sleep. They're trying to be proactive in self-care. You know, they're doing things to try to, they're getting massages and they're going on leisure walks and they're taking vacations and they're, you know, they're doing all the things, but they're still tired. And sometimes it's because the type of restorative activity they're doing isn't intentional or specific enough for the place where they have the deficit. You can sleep all day long and still not restore an emotional rest deficit because it's just not going to (laughs) happen. That's not how you restore that. You restore that by having opportunities to express yourself authentically, to be able to get those pent up, built up emotions out in a healthy outlet. Sleep's not going to solve that. Sleep's not going to solve a creative rest deficit. So I think it's just really important to be aware of where you're pouring out and if the activities you're doing for rest are actually helping the place that you have a deficit. Very cool. I do a lot of research on stress and the built environment. And I use an analogy of a video game, right? Where you can do things that earn you life points and you could do things that deplete life points. And we're all kind of at a different setting, but it's really about Do you have the points you need to get through the situation that you're in? That's a great way of looking at it. Absolutely. But that's exactly right. Because I think for a lot of people, if they're looking at all seven of these areas and they're looking at their point bank in all seven of these areas, some areas are pretty low and they're on their last life. (laughs) So they're just... (laughs) barely staying alive and really on the verge of burnout. What happens when you get to that point? So for myself, when I got to the point of burnout, it was, and it's interesting because this was before, you know, the World Health Organization had classified it, gave it some dimensions around it. I was not functioning at a level that I wanted to function at. Like I was still going to work every day. I was still able to see patients and do all the things, you know, um, that my internal medicine practice demanded but it had lost all joy. I had gotten to a point where my body physically hurt. There was so much stress, so much kind of wound up tension that was never being released because I didn't have an outlet or a strategy for releasing it. So I stayed painful. I stayed uncomfortable. I would, you know, when I lay down to go to sleep at night, I would not be able to get my head to shut up. It's like my mental space would just be ruminating over thoughts or conversations. So it would take me like, 20, 30, sometimes 40 minutes to just clear my cerebral space before going to sleep. I stayed a little bit kind of wound up and anxious. And at the time I wasn't really aware of how the sensory inputs in my day were affecting just my overall feeling of anxiety. And so I would spend time doing electronic medical records and get in my car and I'd turn on the radio and listen to talk radio on the way home. And I get home and I jump on Facebook and check it out. You know, and I was doing all of these things that were keeping my sensory inputs high without really being aware of how they were draining me and keeping me from being able to kind of get any sensory rest. So there were so many different parts of me that were just at the end of themselves, as you mentioned, on the last life, just (laughs) barely staying alive, still functioning, still producing, 
but definitely not in a good space. If any medical student had asked me if they should go into medicine at that time, I would have said, absolutely not. Worst decision of my life. Wow. But it wasn't true. It wasn't because I didn't like the work or the people or, or the situation. What I didn't like is how I felt doing it. And mm. that's what burnout did. It changed everything that I loved and had spent an entire lifetime preparing for, training for, desiring, and made it to something that I hated. It's interesting that you kind of say the hallmark of burnout is that you lose the joy. Mm-hmm. You lose that sense of purpose and you're just kind of on autopilot. Do you find that people come to you as a doctor and say, I have these symptoms, but there's really nothing wrong with them and that they're not really understanding that what they're experiencing is burnout? All the time, <laughs> because everybody wants the magic pill. So there's a lot of people who come to doctor's offices across the world with a lot of nondescript symptoms. This hurts, that hurts. I can't think clearly. I can't remember three things when I walk in the grocery store. I'm you know, 30, do I have dementia? All of these things that people start thinking because we have plenty of information online so we can look up and Google our symptoms and come up with all kinds of diagnoses. And so you know, in internal medicine, people would come with their list of complaints and I would do some tests because you don't know if it's medical or not till you do some evaluation. But I do some tests, check thyroids, you know, all the things and everything's normal. In those situations, that's when I tend to tell patients, hey, I have this this assessment I'd love for you to do just so we can kind of see if maybe there's something more than just a chemical issue, because I don't see any chemical issues that might be causing this. That's really where the rest quiz and restquiz.com came from, was that process of needing to help people identify for themselves. Because me just telling them was kind of like, okay, she says I need rest. How am I going to do that? You know, I got, you know, three kids, a spouse, laundry, dishes, you know, the works like most of us do. And it seems so impossible. And so helping them be able to just first wrap their mind around, you don't have to try to fix out all of it at one time. You're not trying to get all seven fixed overnight. Let's pick the one that's your greatest deficit the one that's giving you the most grief right now, let's get that looking better. Because when that one starts looking better and you start feeling better, then it's easier to start layering on some different habits and strategies in these other areas. I love that. And everybody needs to go take rest quiz because I think so many people just don't even know that they have a problem. And it's almost like a badge of honor to say, I got four hours of sleep last night or here was my day and you have this chaotic list of, you know, 1100 different things that you did, some of them splitting your attention among five tasks at one time. And people rattle that off almost like, and look at me because I did it. And it's really not anything to be proud of. It's very toxic and it's built a toxic generation. One of the main areas I, I function in now is basically corporate wellness. Uh, companies, organizations that bring me in usually after something drastic has happened mm-hmm. and they're no, they're getting a, a upturn in people leaving the company or they're getting a lot of employee kind of engagement problems that are happening. And they're, they're looking to say, what about our culture within our company is causing people to want to bolt, to 
to want to leave. And oftentimes it's a toxic mindset within their particular culture, their company culture that has people feeling that if they don't work excessive amounts of hours, that there's no hope for succeeding there. And so it's taking time to help really help companies see how productivity improves when people actually have an understanding of their own self-awareness, really, of their own self-care needs in the middle of the workday. Because I think for too often, we think that it has to be done outside of the workday. But there are so many simple things that can be done in the middle of the workday that doesn't distract people or take them away from their jobs from long periods of time, but it keeps them in a cycle of ongoing restoration so that they never get to a place of true depletion with the time they close off their computers and go home. And that's where we want to be. You don't want to bring the scraps of yourself to your family at the end of the day, because that's how marriages end and kids you know, know who you are anymore. You want to still have something left to live the rest of your life after you finish your workday. And so we have to get back into that understanding of how to make this a, a pattern of living. So that rest isn't just this thing we do on the weekends. Mm, that's a great point. So I wanted to ask you, architecture is a creative profession, but a lot of times being creative can be emotionally draining. You know, clients are not always willing to accept your idea. You have this great breakthrough and they're like, no, we just want you to build more of what we already have. And you feel really disappointed or there can be pressure to perform and hit certain professional milestones at certain points. And of course, there's always the destructive energy that comes with competition, which is Mm -hmm. very easy to happen in a creative field. So what could you say to someone experiencing any or all of those to help them stay more grounded and resist the ways that those things could deplete them. There's a lot there. Most of it kind of resolves around, I would probably say that emotional rest, as you mentioned, which is basically the rest of being able to just be really authentic. But a part of emotional rest also includes the performance stress that a lot of people experience, as well as some people have just normal, or I should say natural kind of people pleasing type tendencies. They like the affirmation of people's agreeing with them. I think one of the things that's really helpful when you find that you tend to have more of a people-pleasing behavior, or if you're someone who does a lot of comparing with other people, is to get to a place where you are kind of looking at things a little bit more objectively. And so one of the practices we sometimes have people do is if you find that you leave, let's say a situation like you mentioned, where you're having some kind of disagreement with the client and you left there feeling less than upset, you know, wonder what I call the um, wondering if you really measure up to whatever it is you're trying to do, you know, all of those insecurity type feelings that tend to pop up when something like that happens is rather than spend an excessive amount of emotional energy and mental energy, kind of reprocessing through that uh, situation and the conversation is to write down what it made you feel. Because the problem with emotional rest is we don't say what we really feel. So we'll say that client ticked me off. Well, what about that conversation ticked you off? It would be better and more emotionally restful to say that client hurt my feelings because they made me feel like I didn't know what I was doing. That's a different conversation than that client ticked me off. But we don't say that because it feels very vulnerable. And so that's kind of where the emotional rest comes into play. It's helpful to have someone in your life where you can just tell your emotions unfiltered. 
as it comes out of your mouth without worrying how somebody else will receive it. So that can't always be a family member or a spouse. Sometimes that needs to be a therapist or a coach or a counselor or someone where you can say that. Sometimes it can just be a, a journal if that's something that you enjoy doing, a place to get that emotion out. Because the problem is without kind of giving voice to what it really was that bothered you, you never get any healing from it. You never get the relief of whatever that emotion is because you're really kind of hiding it from yourself. So often that's the question I have people when they experience that. What is it that the comparison is doing? Is there a part of you that feels like if you don't reach certain level that you don't matter, that your work doesn't matter, that people don't appreciate you? What is it? You know, what is that the real core of the feeling that you're having? Give voice to that without shame, without fear, without judgment of yourself. It's just a feeling. It's not a reality, but you got to get that out because otherwise it just stays toxic. That makes makes a lot of sense. There was one thing I wanted to touch on before we wrap up today. Most of us at this point are dealing with the stress of Zoom calls, trying to do interactive work in this virtual format and I've noticed this, I'm sure everyone else has too, the sheer number of meetings has just exponentially increased. And I just feel so much more drained after these video calls than I could have spent a whole day on site in meetings and not been this tired at the end of the day. Is this kind of a new normal that we're going to be facing? Is there a reason why the Zoom call is so much more exhausting for us? And what do we do to counteract that? Well, a huge part of what I'm seeing with the work we're doing with companies is Zoom calls have a tendency to sensory drain us more than other types of communication. If I'm in a room with everyone, the surroundings, the sensory inputs very well controlled within that room. We're all in the same room. So all I have to focus on are the individual faces of the different people that are talking. Most Zoom calls, everybody has a different background. Some people are in their kitchen and you're looking at their blender and their toaster. Is that a Cuisinart? You know, you're checking out their stuff. Somebody else is in the bedroom and you're trying to see, are those clothes on the bed? You know, you're <laughs> so much sensory input over and beyond just the 10 people who happen to be in the room, we get a lot of draining because we're sensory overloaded. And we're even more sensory overloaded because there's even more of our senses, our visual senses being pulled into the conversation. Even if you do a spotlight, that person's room is just bigger. It's more stuff that you can look at. So one of the things we're doing with a lot of different IT companies that we've been working with is getting them to come up with a universal, you know, virtual background that mm -hmm. they're going to use at all meetings. And by taking out extra visual input, and we specifically like for it to be one of the colors that's in alignment with the creative rest data that we receive. A lot of people experience creative rest with colors that are resembling the ocean or bodies of water. So light blues, teals, those kind of calming colors to make a virtual screen. Out of, you know, we're not caring what your company colors are. This is just to kind of get the background universal. So if there's 10 people who are in the, the meeting, we all see the same background so that our visual isn't being pulled in multiple directions. And then to even go a step further to spotlight whoever's talking so that we don't have like every little tiny box popped up on the screen the whole time. It's kind of taken to one single face the same way it would if we were in a room. 
if we were in a room, I wouldn't be looking at all 10 of you at one time. I'd be looking at the one person. And so my brain isn't having to scatter into 10 different directions as I'm staring at the screen. It can be narrowed down to just the one person. That's just kind of one tactic that we're using now to help people with the Zoom calls. Another is to who said meetings had to start every hour on the hour. Can we have a five, 10 minute break in between meetings? Particularly if the meeting is directly related to creativity, you're going to set a team down to brainstorm, but you haven't given their brain a chance to clear out or to even fill up with anything innovative. To give your team, we're going to take a 10 minute, 20 minute break. I want you to just go and take a few moments for some creative rest. Walk outside, go. If it's snowing three feet outside of your house in Denver, go stare out the window at the snow. Whatever it is you have to do just to kind of break away from looking at the screen for a minute. Oh, I to love give that. Your senses something different and to give your creativity something different to process so that when you come back to have that conversation about that building you're doing, you actually have some fresh insight you're bringing into it. I never thought about that, but it's so true. The other thing I notice is when the camera's on, I feel like I have to be aware of what I'm doing. So because of eye contact, like for this interview we're doing, I have the screen very small. So I look like I'm looking at the screen, but I'm also looking at your face. If we were Mm -hmm. side by side, my eyes would be going and just feel this sense of relief when I turn up the camera during a meeting. (laughs) <laughs> you know, just not having to worry about what are, are my eyes looking funny or what am I doing that someone might notice and find distracting? I find that a lot of corporations do not like that. <laughs> they want everybody's camera on. And I think that's why we started to do the universal kind of virtual screen, because a lot of them do like every camera on. I, I think honestly, they're using it more for accountability to make sure people are paying attention. They can kind of make sure that you're not doing something else during the time, multitasking. I think whenever you can focus it down to one face, it definitely does help decrease some of that uh, extra stress and strain. I feel like I do multitask so much more because I can, but then what is that doing that is depleting energy because you're trying to do two or three things at the same time and you're a little bit distracted doing all of them. Yeah, multitasking is probably the main reason that I think we are such an exhausted generation. We have mastered multitasking. Whenever I ask someone to just take a look at your computer screen, how many tabs are open right now? For most people, it's at least five. Uh, Like I said, I work with IT companies. One IT company, people were giving me numbers like 30, 40, 50 screens that are open at one time. If we think about that, if you have that many screens open, what type of screens are open in your brain at any given time to be able to jump from one of those tasks to another? It's the very same thing in your mental process. You have these multiple mental tabs open that you're bouncing around to. So is it any wonder you can't remember the three things you walked into the grocery store to get? Which tab is that under? You don't even know where to look to even go find it. We really have to get control over our multitasking if we if we want to keep a, a more rested mental space because it really is draining us. Absolutely. And I think we're all feeling pressure to do even more multitasking since we're working and at home and, 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 and. Think that's a great point. It's not a win to multitask at all. No, and you bring up a great point because when we are in our current situation where work life and home life kind of slammed into each other in 2020, everything's happening under one roof for long periods of time. It became even more important to have some really 
healthy boundaries on how you're going to function. It's one thing when our offices were in a, one location and we came home, we kind of knew, okay, I'm at home. If I crack open my work computer, I'm kind of like invading the space with, with work. You actually felt that little bit of like, I don't want to bring my work home. Well, what about when the, your office is like around the corner? It's very easy to walk out with your computer and keep working because you're still in the same location. So I think we really just have to be aware of that, whatever boundaries that we're putting up for our own sanity, that we maintain those even when our work life really merges like it is now. Oh, this has been so helpful. I want to definitely implement some of these things today. These are great tips and insights, things I just never even thought of that the minute you said it, I'm like, that is so true. I always say this is not rocket science. (laughs) It's rest. It's simple tactics that honestly are usually just things we haven't implemented. They're things we haven't isolated as something we can do that might be helpful. Great. Well, I am so glad you could be on the show today. Thank you so much for all of your great insights. I think everyone learned a lot of important things. And I love that they're also easy to put in place right away too. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And if anyone wants to learn more information, the quickest way of doing that would probably be at my main website, at ichoosemybestlife.com. And we'll also post links to all this in the show notes so everybody can look it up. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Wow, what a great episode. If you're enjoying the discussion, tell five friends about what you're learning here on this show. Don't forget to also be part of the LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook communities to share ideas about content or thoughts on how a show might have helped you. Architecting is now officially a club on Clubhouse, hosting three weekly rooms. I'd love it if you'd drop by. Until next time, stay inspired.